So welcome back to the Describe Your World podcast. This is episode six, and I'm Travis. Today I'm with a really good friend and my guest, Havante. Um, we actually have an interesting backstory. We went to high school together for exactly one year. So <laughs> there wasn't much time to uh, get to know one another and bond. But at the same time, I still have fond memories. Um, so I'm sure we'll be getting into that a little bit. Havante is a content creator, which I'm excited to talk about. And he has uh, a, a lot of different hobbies and interests and things that I'm just as curious to learn about myself. So I'm going to let him take over in just a second. For those who are watching on YouTube or listening in audio format, appreciate all of the likes and the follows and the subscriptions. Please continue to do so and, and find the uh, format that you prefer and just go ahead and follow the podcast if you like to hear more episodes or go back and um, listen to some of the past episodes. Um, so Havante, how's it going, man? Oh, it's going. I've just been busy for the last, what feels like, a lifetime. <laughs> busy for the past 10 years? <laughs> Pretty much. It sounds great. Um, so one thing that I was excited to learn, Havante has two bachelors and is working on a master's program. So he's a lot farther ahead than I am. I, I was playing with the idea of a master's program at one point, but um, I took a couple classes and then life just happened and I didn't have time for any more. So I'm sure you know what that feels like, but having two degrees, there's, there's a lot there to uh, chew on. So what I normally like to do is start with early life and I like to frame it sort of as an origin story. So I'm really curious, and I'm sure people who are listening are also curious about sort of your upbringing and your education, family, any any noteworthy moments or experiences from childhood that you'd like to mention. Um, so I'll turn it over to you and let you uh, and let you educate everybody. Well, for early childhood, <clears throat> I think I may have mentioned this recently, uh, passing conversation. Early life on childhood for me is pretty much pretty much was born in West Virginia. Spent three of the years there. Next thing I know, I find myself in Hawaii for six months living out there with family and settle in the Southeast for what has now been more than 20 years. And background of the family, somewhat religious, somewhat not. It all depends on who you're talking about, but most of the family does have strong ties to faith. And when it comes to like, that fight gives you that background involving faith and also has seemed to have pushed a lot of the family to be driven to get what they want as well. Driven is in a, like a motivated sense to succeed or driven is in like an angry, evil, dark way. <laughs> <laughs> well, driven motivates to succeed. I mean, okay. Gotcha. I, as you mentioned, two bachelor's degrees, the story behind that. Oh, well, you know, from also the time out, you know, coming out of college, you know, out of college, out of high school, I spent what year and a half trying to find a program that would mesh well with me for my bachelor, oh, my bachelor's, my associates, and I just said, oh, Janet, it'll be the way to go, and I'll do that. I meet with a uh, counselor for a four-year university and said, oh, you can use your transcript. Now, you your associates as a transcript to transfer. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll do that. And get all the way through a psychology program. Played around with the idea of studying music too, because I talked to a piano instructor at, you know, Francis Mary University. Oh, well, you can study music and psychology. You could double minor. You can do a number of things. So I was like, okay. So I go talk to the department chair and tell him I went to double major. He looked at me chuckled and said you probably paid it you're almost done with one program why well, throw more work on top of you 
it leads to a year and a half, two years of music at a level I never thought it would. Learning, production, performance, having to unlearn pretty much everything I thought I knew about music. Just a commercial musicianship. And since then, it's the best way to describe it is in order to maintain the knowledge, I've had to do in situations where I have to think about the legal side of it all as well. Wow. It's, you got a lot going on. So you're, you're going everywhere from, so did you finish a psychology degree as well? Yes. Okay, cool. So between the two, are there any, is there any relation? Is it possible to connect those or do you have to repeat a lot of courses? Uh, interestingly, some of the overlapped. And some of the knowledge I ended up getting a second time, specifically for the track I was on, it was business. So I'm taking business stats, business law, things like that. And I got a bit of that when I study ethics and psychology as well. So it, for me, it was more of a refresh at some point when I had to take it a second time for a different course. However, there is one class that overlapped for the two, weirdly enough economics class looking at the history of america's what was it called again economic history everything from mercantilism to capitalism at first they only counted it as a history course counted it as a business course as well so that that's that overlap i'm talking about when it did i was thanking my lucky stars <laughs> yeah anytime you don't have to learn something twice it's always helpful <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so I want to backtrack just a little bit. So you were moving around a lot at an early age, ended up planted in the Southeast. So we, we went to school in uh, Chesterfield County, it's a really small part of South Carolina, nothing extremely noteworthy. Um, so did you do all 12 years uh, in private school in the same place or was there more moving there? It was more moving. Uh, I would say it was kindergarten up to third grade. Fourth grade, I moved to Virginia, went to a Presbyterian school there for two years and came back and finished out sixth grade all the way up to high school at the you know, same school we graduated from. Gotcha. Okay. So how do you, how did that affect you in, in as far as, because if you're going from Christian to, or private to public to different types of schools, like did that, <laughs> that negatively affect you in any way or did it have no effect? Uh it didn't negatively affect me, but it me to it did challenge my worldview and to be more open minded as well. Yeah, so it's funny you say that because the same thing happened to me just way, way later. So all of that <laughs> happened to me like after high school, of course, because I did um, same same curriculum, same private setup all the way from kindergarten to twelve. So when I started at like a technical college, my mind was kind of blown. I was like, oh. The rest of the world is very different. <laughs> I got a bit of that when I started at technical. It really started to kick into high gear when I transferred to uh, Francis Marion. Yeah. Yeah, same. Um, I transferred out of tech or I transferred my associate degree, started at St. Andrews in Laurenburg, which is used to be Presbyterian, but now it's just university, like public. Um, so they don't have the same sort of faith-based curriculum as they at one time they incorporated a lot of that. So 
same same experience like college was just a mind-blowing experience with lots of different things that i wouldn't have anticipated or was not prepared for that's i i get that too um one thing that's a bit of an adjustment and you think i would have been being at a technical college but it didn't happen until i transferred to a four-year university this week or so I was like, okay, this isn't too bad. It's the same old, same old. And I thought about what my professor said at the, which was, all right, I'm just letting you guys know, you know, right now, at some point, I hear me swearing and yelling in class. And I was like, what? what? <laughs> You're joking, right? In truth form, she did. She started talking <laughs> about the Spartans and how their society collapsed. And she dropped a few expletives there. And I'm like, oh, okay. This is. Yeah. This is the college experience. <laughs> it's like, here's the real world. How are you going to adapt to it? That that same thing, very similar thing. One of my professors at uh, NETC basically announced in front of the class, he's like, you know, I'm going to drop some F-bombs. So if there are any sensitive listeners, you know, I'm just warning you ahead of time. And the majority of the students were like, no, we don't care. You know, we use that language. But me and my extremely inexperienced uh, naivete um, was like, this is not going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> you would think, given my background, because I mean, reunion is pretty much the cha cha slide playing it oh, no. repeat. While there's a, like, weirdly enough, a phone, it's called a snow cone machine somewhere in the background. Just being like, oh, well, whatever. I hear this all the time. But to hater say, it was a, it was a different experience at first. You know, I, Got way too comfortable with it. I'm like, eh, it's whatever. That's <laughs> um, what how it is. Oh. What was oh. your uh, family life like? Family life. Um, it was pretty much my family just pushing, pushing me to like succeed, but more so to do the best that I can. Don't sell myself short. Just try give it 120 percent, essentially but don't burn myself out doing it yeah just be the best version of you possible but yeah. don't like uh lose your mind or anything i mean my grandfather was my grandfather an example of that i mean essentially you can say came out of like a lower middle class went into the service did two tours there was bitten got out worked with csx for years and even had done some farming at his point, at some point in his life. So I'm one of the few remaining black cowboys. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it, that's it's another aspect of who you are and, and what makes you different, too, because where we come from in South Carolina, even though the world has transitioned and evolved and grown and, and people have really caught up, I think, quite a bit with the times in 2022 and, and what's OK to say and what's not OK. Where we come from, I think there are still a lot of people who are really still back in that, you know, boomer age where you could kind of say whatever you want and people just have to, to suck it up and deal with it. I would say it very much still has that vibe in South Carolina. However, as time's gone on, especially since you know, the lockdown 2020, people have more vocal. They're not taking it like they used to. 
Good to know. I mean, I, I'm definitely curious to get your perspective because this is one of the things that came to mind whenever I was thinking about talking to you because, you know, I feel a little guilty personally, and I'm sure that some of our classmates probably have felt at some point the same way. But when we were in class, so just to put some context to the conversation, we had an entire high school that was like 12 people. So everything from ninth grade through 12th grade was 12 to 15 kids. And out of 12 to 15 people, you have one or two black people, you know, and that's it. That's all you have. And so, you know, when we were in high school, a lot of comments and things were said that were totally not appropriate. But, you know, I'm I'm definitely intrigued to learn how you were affected by that or if it really affected you negatively at all. Um, and just to just to throw out a disclaimer for anybody listening or watching, any comments that we're reiterating from 10 years ago, please don't say them. They're not appropriate and they're not okay to say <laughs> because, you know, they're, they're, you know, they can be hurtful. And, and even if they didn't affect Havante in a negative way, they can affect a lot of people in a very negative way. Um, so just an example, again, don't repeat this comment because it's not okay to say, but one of the comments that I've heard and maybe I've said whenever we were in class was something like, you know, we, we sort of viewed Havante as a white guy trapped in a black guy's body. Just because of his interest, his his perspective, the way he addressed us, the way we interacted. And, and looking back on it, it sounds absolutely horrible. Like, I would never say that to someone now. But at the time, it was like, eh, you know, not a big deal. <laughs> so how do you feel about that? Do you have a similar take on it? or? Um, I will say since high school, that state doesn't run around much. And I rarely think about it. Yeah. I mean, yes interests aren't stereotypical but looking at my background and is it's not surprising i mean i'm originally from west virginia i grew up listening to two genres of music reggae and classic rock and that's all that was on the radio so it's not surprising that at some point i'm like oh this is really good i think i want to play it too yeah are there are there any um, comments that you do remember from high school or any time in your early life that stuck with you or that affected you affected you negatively? Stuck with me, yes. Have they affected me? I mean, in high school, I mean, yeah, there were throwaway comments that would hurt most body if they hurt them. But thinking back on some of the interactions I've had after high school, like those situations were small potatoes <laughs> work retail it's the best way why all of us in the store described it was just layer of hell wow. <clears throat> i mean you have customers come in and they will their response realize who the person on the phone was with them I had somebody ask, oh, who's the guy I was talking to? And I was like, oh, that was me. Recognize the voice, just didn't believe it was me because the way I addressed him. I was like, there's no way that was you. I don't see you talking like that. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> what can you elaborate on what you by that? And the customer proceeds to walk off in shock. There's high school. It was just, oh, you said that? Cool. Probably going to forget this in a couple of days anyway. It's just strange thinking back how how um, people were willing to make comments without thinking, you know, and, and I think 
it maybe there was some good and bad to the fact that they didn't affect you negatively because we were in a situation where someone said something hurtful or racist and someone were if really offended by it, you know, maybe they would have spoken up. And at that time they could have sort of nipped some of that in the butt and, and it would have gone away. But I think, I think there was a lot of quote unquote picking, you know, air quotes for anybody listening. There was a lot of picking and there were a lot of comments that were thrown around that were, you know, today would just be considered awful or, or not appropriate. But at the time we were kids and we were ignorant about it. And, you know, it takes a long time and a lot of experiences before you sort of grow up and grow out of those habits. And I'd like to add to that. This, this is something I've been seeing a lot of discussion on as well from not just, you know, anybody discussing nature versus nurture, which is something I do have an interest in do a psychology degree. Um, one thing I've noticed is as time's gone on, we have moved away from saying things that we used to say tw- like 10 years ago. You still have some people who do, whether it be because so that we're sitting here on the internet having this conversation, small groups who are like, we'll never change. This is who we are. And they're aware of that. Or you have some people who it's something they learned, but it's so ingrained environment, whether it be their home, their hometown, or just the worst case scenario, a state that it's slow on the change. It'll get there. It'll just take longer. Yeah, it's, it's, South Carolina is definitely one of those states where it's it's also sort of um, separated by what region you're in. So not every place in South Carolina is the same. We just come from a very poor, very not well-known place, very small place um, that's really shaped by different religious values, different um, experiences, and also poverty, subsistence, um, and just not having a lot of opportunity to to develop like commercial industry and things like that um but that doesn't make those things okay or correct or or appropriate it's just a super interesting dynamic when i think back on it i think about how so much was said that shouldn't have been and the long-term effect of that um but as you said you know working in retail doing different things sounds like you've had worse experiences so Definitely curious if you have anything you'd like to share that might sort of add more light and perspective on on the concept. Oh, some of the one of the like oddest exchanges I've had with a customer. I remember this yesterday. For starters, my shift manager made it a to say something after the customer left, and two, I'll admit it. And I've always, I mean, I've always been like this. I try not to do it, but it. It leads to entertaining moments. I can be a bit on the petty side. You've seen it firsthand. Whenever somebody pushes a little too, like, oh, okay, cool. And next thing you know, something happens. They're like, what's going on? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Had a customer walk in. I was speaking to him, asking questions. He's not responding. I'm like, okay. And I was still studying psychology at the time as well. I was like, okay, maybe he's not verbal. Let me just keep up. I have these clues. I'm just being observant. He wasn't nonverbal. He just didn't want to talk. I'm like, okay, whatever. I can work with this. He hands me a product. It was like, it's like set ball bearings or something. Like and I scanned him. I'm like, sir, is that all? He just looked at me. I was like, well, your total will be this. You want me to bag it? it? Doesn't say anything. I'm like, okay, I'll put it in a small bag and put it in the bag. 
he puts the money on the counter and slides it to me and i'm like oh i see where we're going with this now right. it makes sense so account has changed i'm like here you go sir and place the money in his hand now i think he's gonna be he looks down at his hand looks at me and he does that a few times kind of play withdraws and just store wow my shift manager walks up and says i think that guy was racist i'm like you don't say just like that <laughs> and proceed to start mopping the floor i wasn't bothered by it i mean again i've lived most of my life and i have uh, you know speaking of as you mentioned earlier traveling i've also been in mississippi Alabama, Texas, and other places in the South as well. You are, you either have to get used to the glances really fast or just not think about it. Because if you do, I look at it as in dealing with a shark. It's not going to be a pretty sight. It can possibly lead to worse. It can possibly lead to more aggressive behavior and reactions to you because doing it. So what do you, I mean, obviously there's a challenge that sort of develops because you are someone who has been, you've experienced racism, just like that one example. I'm sure you've experienced plenty of examples, um, but you're also patient and you're understanding and you don't let it sort of incite any kind of violence, obviously, as a result, or maybe it has, maybe you have worse stories, but from <laughs> what I can tell you, sounds like you're, you're, you handle it and you, you deal with it. So what do you think generally I'm a person of color in a place where we come from should expect or, or should, should do to sort of deal with that moving forward? Cause like I said, we're still behind. I mean, in my, my understanding is that we're still behind. I would say for anybody who is a person of color, they, they might agree. There might be disagreement. There might be a point that they can agree or disagree with. But I would say what's helped me is just acknowledging, okay, this person might think this. Why is that? And just start thinking about the factors that lead into that. I mean, this is, again, I'm probably going to mention it multiple times. It does initially go back to me studying psychology. Just the fact that I've had to observe data involving regions and how people behave in those regions. It's just okay for me to just not retaliate. I mean, if someone were to do something that can be deemed racist, how I respond to that situation determine how much it's going to escalate. I can possibly keep it down to a discussion or a debate, or I could just lose cool and basically know I have a fight on our hands or worse. I'd rather just try to keep calm, and if they say something, push it to a debate. Ask them, why do you think this? And I've had some success with that. People... Yeah, I was going to say, um, what's a good conversation maybe you've had with someone in which you've enlightened them or deepened their understanding in a way that maybe no one had before? <clears throat> oh, this, um, okay, this is going to sound fair, but I do recall... I had to step out into the field as a with case management to interview some potential clients, tell them what we, you know, let them know, hey, we're here to help. If you need anyone that's going to give me a, give you a lead on any services you need, don't hesitate to reach us, you know, parts and stuff like that. 
before we start, an older gentleman walked up to me and made the comments. I don't understand how somebody can be homeless and somebody traveled and seen poverty in various parts of the country. I've never lived in poverty and yet I still took that personally. But instead of doing saying, excuse me, sir, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. I said, well, sir, let's look at the let's look at the let's look at the data and proceeded to just go through the facts of why poverty exists and why some people will be homeless. He looked at me dumbfounded and walked away. I was like, okay, well, I, I'm not going to sit here and chase him down and preach at him about it. Right. Yeah, because there's a responsibility on the side of everyone else, you know, to educate themselves, to have a deeper understanding. It's just, I don't know if it's a first instinct. And I think that that's the big transition that's happening right now is people are starting to understand that, you know, becoming educated and having a deeper understanding is extremely important if you're going to have meaningful relationships and people are going to stop fighting, you know. Um, not everyone is as calm and patient as you. <laughs> so obviously there's some... There are some fights, I'm sure, that have that have come out of similar situations. Uh, it really just comes from ignorance. You know, it comes from people who don't understand or maybe people who were raised this way. Um, I look at, speaking of psychology, I look at, um, you know, some abusive home situations in a similar way. You know, there are parents who were beaten as children, and then that's the behavior that they understand. So, therefore, they use that same behavior to parent their children. And until they receive education understanding and realize that that's extremely negative and damaging to the child it doesn't really stop so it, it's it's very similar it's it's like um if they're raised a certain way that that training and that upbringing just passes on to the next generation i do agree with that and that's he mentioning children you know, parents beating their children that's something they learn that's i feel like that's one of the most common talk points when you take a class involving you know looking at development as well i mean we're taking two of them and both of them looked into how the environment's going to shape the child what's innate and i also have to remember the region we live in it's it's more of the same what what's nature and what were they what were they taught what was their home life like yeah, I mean, that's it. It really I'm not going to say it, it hits home because I, I didn't I was not a victim of any kind of uh, physical abuse. But I do have family members, aunts and uncles who experience that kind of thing. And I don't think that anyone would, would call it abuse. You know, they would just call it their way of life or, or what they experienced. And in fact, they would speak extremely highly of their parents, the same parents who were committing those kinds of behaviors. Um, and so it's hard to. It's hard to understand that similar to the question of race. It's hard to understand that some uh, inter interactions that are really good examples of racism didn't have long-term negative effects. You know, the person has gotten used to it and they, they just went and made it through and they just kept going. Um, and so that's not extremely consistent. Everyone has a different response to those things. So it's kind of hard to understand every individual situation. Do agree with that. I do agree with that. So I do want to talk about briefly awkwardness as a teenager because 
the the age at which you and I were interacting with each other in high school, 16, 17, 18, that area, we were extremely awkward. And I think it's it's funny now because when I think about teenagers now and the way that they behave and the way that they act, I cringe at them. But at the same at the same token, like when I was that age, I was pretty cringe myself. Um, I can't, I can't, I cannot like say, oh, I wasn't. I definitely. I mean, <laughs> we were. I was one of, talking to one of our classmates recently. And I was like, man. I think back on high school and immediately he said, Oh yeah, you're rooting borderline emo kid. And I'm like, I want to <laughs> disagree with that statement, but you're not wrong. I mean, <laughs> think about the music I listened to at the time, which I do listen to on occasion now, but I do, I don't put it on repeat. There are reasons for that, but it's more so from what I had to do as a music student as well. Keep it varied because I was, going to be sitting in the studio having to work on something yeah i mean i definitely um i can put on like a paramore or a fallout boy or a panic at the disco album now and it's i still like it you know i I understand that it was really for a time and it was really for uh, a movement and a certain type of person emo if you want to call them that but i still like it i still like their modern music and i like all sorts of music and and so i don't I don't really think of emo music being like 2000 to 2010 or anything like that. It's just, uh, I think it's something that when we look back on that period of time, you know, in history books or whatever, or when we study music 50 years from now, I don't even know that they'll associate emo with a certain type of music. I have a feeling just given the trends through history, it'll probably be considered a different approach or take at either rock or punk pop punk that's what i'm thinking because when i think paramore i think pop i think pop punk to a degree depending on what era paramore that is i would almost i would almost associate the style of clothing and the way that the bands presented their music more of a descriptor than the type of person who is listening to it because when i think about 14 15 16 year olds I think emotional and angsty and hormonal, regardless of what music they're listening to. I mean, so are... I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's how it will be viewed, you know, 50 years from now. But that's my guess that when they talk about pop punk and alternative and those bands, they'll be talking about their stylistic stuff. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I have a professor sit down and talk with him about presentation for music. One of the things he's going to mention is style and specifically the band's aesthetic as well as how they dress. I mean, the ensemble I was a part of, we got told the same thing for presentation. Be energetic. However, you need to ham up the behavior and way you keep the crowd entertained. And we're all black. <laughs> like, I'm sitting here like we're playing Dirty Diana by Michael Jackson. <laughs> Why are we wearing all black? <laughs> so when you were, I mean, when we were listening to those bands, um, I mean, surely we were emo. I mean, I, I would say that I don't know that we were wearing eyeliner and wearing all black, but I mean, I think we were emo. Um, that part of that might have been because we weren't allowed to wear those things. I, um, that actually may have been a big part of it. 
but it, it was so strange in high school too. You know, I remember a situation and I, I think it was the year that I was there. We were both there, but someone had like uh, done the, the look with like platinum blonde with like black on the bottom or something like that. Sent home, made to change the entire hair color and then come back after it was changed. And that was just such a strange thing to me. Like I understand why, because of the, the, the situation and the environment, but it's, it's hair color. Like who cares? <laughs> I mean, go to any, and I mean any, liberal arts in the country, and you'll see, and I'm speaking from personal experience on this, you'll possibly see someone with braids or that are dyed, but the tips are highlighted, and you're just like, oh, okay, whatever, and just move about your business. But in that situation, it was just highlights. Yeah innocuous highlights and if i remember correctly that student i do remember that too i think a student was gone for what three days it was a while yeah it was it was really strange and we all sort of understood what was going on it wasn't like a secretive thing um it wasn't thing that was swept under the rug like it was made very clear that you know there's a certain appearance that you have to maintain which is still strange to me that our faith would be tied to a certain appearance you know because my faith has nothing to do with the way i look but it still happens. I'm sure it's still a factor. Like there are still private schools that have that same kind of strict and rigid structure where, you know, if you look a certain way, it's the, uh, the way that you're presenting yourself is considered either negative or sinful or whatever. Um, and people still struggle and have those same poor experiences. I would say it's very much, that is very much the case. I'm knowing some circles, they are becoming a bit more lax about it. But in other circles, more traditional, that is not the case. I mean, one of the things that I have to get used to when it comes to anything involving faith in our area, I'm at a church. I'll look at the stage. The band director and the singer was talking, and they both had sleeve tattoos. And I'm just like, I've never seen that before. I've talked to some people about it, you know, afterwards and came down to a discussion about what is your level of conviction? I'm like, okay, that's one way to look at it. And even me, I mean, my hair is, it's long. I mean, it's touching my shoulders now. And it's been like this. For you just stop going to a barbershop there in lockdown. And I was, what can we do about this? So I don't have an <laughs> Afro. I don't want an Afro again. I want to do something different. Right. So we started locking my hair and that was a massive change that many people had to get used to. They didn't know how to take it because my hair hasn't long since I was six. Yeah. But it was all about, you know, presentation and for part, I don't get any pushback or criticism for it, but some people are like, how do you look professional with that? I'm like, oh, simple. After I've done my morning routine, pull my hair back behind my ears and if it just sits there. Yeah, at uh, the hospital where my wife works. So she she has tattoos and she has piercings as well. And um, I know years and years ago, whenever I was young, someone who's a nurse or a doctor who's working at a hospital with sleeves, tattoos, piercings, that kind of thing, especially where we're from, it would just be such a shock or a shocking thing. And they would even encourage people to cover that stuff up. 
Um, and now it's like, you know, if you can care for the patient and you can keep them alive, I don't care what you look like. Like, it's all good. If you like, if you can do your job well, then you don't really care, you know, what's on your body. I noticed that talking to a few of my colleagues when they apply for grad school for psychology, one of them, I at the moment, I'm probably gonna remember this later, but I remember like, there's two things I remember about her specifically. At one point, I do believe her hair was dyed ocean blue, and she had a septum piercing. Hmm. And she was doing the same thing that I was doing at the time, which is case management. And she's seen clients, nobody's bad than I. You had one student who had a very visible like forearm tattoo. Like all the students working in the office had different types of body modifications or Something that would be deemed 15 years ago in psychology unprofessional, but the simple fact that we did not look like the status quo when it comes to psychology, I think made us more personable with the clients. And I think that's why a certain industry was starting to relax on the what it takes to be presented. Nobody wants to deal with someone who seems unapproachable. Yeah, for sure. It's You're 100% right on the nose when you say that a person with a good personality who does their job really well just matters a lot more than a person you know they don't matter a lot more but it matters a lot more to the client or the patient or whatever situation if they do their job well than if they have tattoos or a piercing or anything visible like that and i'm sure there are still situations where there are people who are uh put off by it or they don't like it or they you know would prefer to have someone else doing the work but I think that's going away and we're growing out of that a little bit as we go. I do agree. Um, so one thing that I think is extremely fascinating about teenagers and cringe teenagers uh, specifically are love relationships, because I know when I was 16 or 17, my understanding of love was extremely out of, you know, just not normal at all. Um, and I don't know like how, if all of your experiences are the same, but long distance relationships, um, texting on MySpace, instant messenger, and feeling like you've been in a serious relationship with someone. Uh, and now I'm sure like Vine and then TikTok and all these other Snapchat, all these other platforms, they're probably doing the same thing. Um, it's just now when I look at someone who's 14 or 15 and they have this serious boyfriend or girlfriend and they're on these apps, I'm like, you know, that's not a real thing. But it was really real to me when I was 15 or 16. I'll say I'll say at the age, you're in the midst of it. Yeah, it feels very real. Looking back at it after original 10 plus years <laughs> to the experience that we call life, I'm sitting here like, man, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? <laughs> and I'll go on record and say, I don't shame anybody for a lot of distance relationships. I know a couple of people who do. I mean, someone dating or married to someone who lives in a different country because that's where they work, whereas that individual, specifically if they're a musician, they're going to be working possibly in America because we have three music, music capitals you can work in. I've met people since then that have long-distance relationships, and they make it work. Mm -hmm. It's just they're busy all the time, and when they do spend time with each other, that person may be out of their home country for, oh, say, so it's doable it just requires a lot of work for high school yeah no 
No, see, I'm talking about like I was 16, 17 in serious relationships with somebody like 16 or 17 hours away. And it wasn't realistic at all because there was no way for me to travel there. You know, I didn't have the ability to visit that person. So like some of these people I never even met. And that's what that's the part where I'm like, oh, that that should have, you know, that could have been a little better. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've been there before. And every time I think about it, I'm like, man, again, what was I thinking? Like, <laughs> there was no way I could travel. There was no way I could. And like putting in a lot of effort situation that one would say is unobtainable for the time. Since then, or since college happened, massive workaholic. So mm. it's essentially been married to work for me. Right. So what is your what is your view on love or romantic love now? Like do you uh how do you define it? Um I'd say a the way I define it now, it's I would say for some a near bond or connection. Like there has to be something there that is just pulling those two people back, you know, to each other constantly. And despite what arguments or disagreements they have, they're able to mend that about, you know, business. Yeah, I mean, it's going to hurt brief. If they're able to work through that, then, yeah, I'd see that's what I see love as. Yeah. And so I guess to, to to wrap it all up in a bow, when I think about those teenage years, the big difference, I think, is just at a time there was this infatuation, not only with the person, but I think there was an infatuation with relationships. You know, you 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 want to have those experiences that are sort of sitting outside of your own life experience. And that's just one way to obtain that. It's It's not so much about being in love with somebody, but it's more about, oh, there's this new thing that feels a lot different from my day-to-day -day life. And that's what I want to cling to because it, there's a good feeling there. Um, and, I, and I think there's some confusion because I've learned too over the years that real romantic love is really more about sacrifice and being tied and bonded to a person, having a best friend, having someone that you want to keep close um, versus that, that weird sensation that it was like when we were teenagers. I do agree with that as well. But I'll let that also add on top of the, um, what's it called? The bond and somebody you can work with, best friend. Yeah, that's at the end of the day, when you look at partnerships, it's, it's a mm -hmm. best friend who exceeds or supersedes your best friend. It's someone who's most likely going to know your anxieties, your fears, your dreams and aspirations. And I know some people in the interviews I've had to do, they just having that level of connection, it scares them because they don't want that information used against them. But I'll also say love is about what you said, sacrifice. Yeah, I, I mentioned this on the last episode too, but I made a point to say it when we uh, said our vows at my wedding is I'm choosing this person. Like love is a choice more than a feeling or a verb or anything else. It's like me making a commitment to someone and being willing to follow through on it more so than just this attraction or infatuation or anything else. Um, and so I hate to be mean to all the, <laughs> to all the young people out there who are experiencing all these crazy feelings and hormones and, and things like that. But I, to be fair, anyone who's listening, who's under 18, I'm really making fun of myself. 
So <laughs> just take it with a grain of salt because when we were young, we were weird too. <laughs> like, believe me, we we've been there. It's, it's a confusing, tumultuous time in life to work through, and even to this day, there are things I look back on. I'm like, don't do that again. <laughs> don't. <laughs> That's a lesson learned. Let's not repeat it. Yeah. And it's also weird too. Cause like even the two of us, like we haven't had a real conversation in a very long time. Whenever you finish high school, for those listening or watching, whenever you finish high school and you start college or you move away from the small town where you're from or life begins to pick up and things begin to speed up for you, it's really hard to maintain friendships. Like that's one thing you'll learn is that people who are your close friends or your acquaintances, those people are going to change quite a bit. You're going to cycle through a lot of different friend groups and those relationships that were so strong may not be there in 10 years. Um, so it's just another awkward thing about getting older, but I think it's extremely, uh, extremely relevant, at least for me. I'll say the same as well as I will say weirdly enough, changing friend groups, meeting people, you know, and I say that for college as well, because it's been like that since I finished my bachelor's. I've only talked to a handful of my former ensemble mates since I've only talked to them once. That was April for a re reunion concert. But we all picked up like nothing had changed. It had been graduated, but we picked up like nothing had changed. And it turned into the I kind of like coaching some of the newer students in the ensemble because we could tell they were nervous. I mean, they're fresh. They're putting on semi-professional shows in front of professors, faculty, people in the community, and to some degree, possibly people who are donating to the university. That would make any Right. But all of us still maintain some, you know, some form of connection. Most of it's through Facebook, just liking each other's pictures or <laughs> announcement, but we still, I think some of us still try to touch. Me, on the other hand, again, married to work, so it's Wake up, work. Go to sleep, work. But I did try to keep in touch with people a bit more than I used to. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to go back and reconnect with someone, especially when there's so much to talk about. But I do find myself looking for time to, you know, reach out to an old friend and have a conversation because, you know, who has the time for that? There's work with work and career and personal growth and development. It's just so much. Um, and then there's, relationships, church life, other hobbies and interests, other obligations, familial obligations. I mean, just maintaining those kinds of friendships when you were in high school and living at your parents' house and there were no uh, expectations. It's so different. Like you don't have that time anymore. Yeah, that's something I'm starting to notice more of because with the current group that we have right now, you have Three of us that are parents. I'm not <laughs> one of them, obviously. <laughs> but three of the guys are parents now. Two of us just finished a bat programs, and one is about to finish his, but he's also out of our, you know, for a exchange student program. Outside of that, it's just when we all do talk to each other, it's like, oh, what's been going on since we last spoke? And we <laughs> try to keep it concise because parents in the like group they don't have a lot of time yeah it's family is a priority and it takes you know precedent over everything else i'm not gonna sit there and pull them away from kids 
I enjoy seeing them enjoy their time with their kids. Yeah. I also would say that a lot of the friendships and connections I've made in the past two to three years have really not been by choice. Like a lot of people that come into your life are people that are either tied to like your partner or people who are tied to your job, people who are tied to your church, your obligations. It's kind of weird how you don't get to choose your friends anymore. They just kind of pop up and then there they are. You you, you befriend them um, out of necessity or out of obligation. Um, not to say that those aren't really good relationships because those are people that I care about. But it's just like it's not high school anymore. You can't pick and choose. You can't get on, you know, uh, a messenger, uh, Yahoo Messenger or MySpace and have hundreds of people at your fingertips. And you can just start having these hour long conversations every day. Um, so it is, I think it's better. I mean, I definitely feel more comfortable and I feel like I'm growing and learning. Um, but it's also confusing whenever it's new. Believe me, um, I agree. I agree with that 110%. Speaking of, you know, having, you know, meeting new government, involving some kind of obligation, going back to what I was talking about studying music. Again, making that step into double being a double major, it was as a minor on top of my psychology major. And I was like, oh, music's not that bad. It's just here working through music theory, you know, RO skills, sitting here, you know, trying to fine tune the skills I need as a musician. Double major shouldn't be that bad. Department chair, he laughs at, you're going to suffer. <laughs> I show up. Showed me the curriculum of what I needed because they were telling me you have options. We either think you go down perf you know, performance track or the business track. I went and talked to the chair of the fine arts department. He was like, go with the business track. Trust me. You'll thank you. Later, sweetie, <laughs> I was like, all right, sir. So we did that. They're like, oh, also, you got to like do four semesters of ensemble. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. What are the ensembles? Rock and pop, jazz. Or a guitar ensemble. I'm like, okay, I play guitar, but I know there's enough people that I want to ensemble. Jazz. I've never. <laughs> so we're going to go with rock and pop. I think that's in my wheelhouse. I show up, sit down, anxiety attack. Now, oh, I no. Can, I can put on a brave face. I can do a pretty good poker face in most situations. So I'm sitting there, silently doing combat breathing, you know. Inhale four seconds, exhale four seconds. I'm sitting there doing that silently. And we're talking about the songs we were going to do. Now, the ensemble we had at the time, was, it was fairly diverse. But we did have one student. One thing, she was a Russian exchange student. She wanted to join. She, But she did focus on other parts of the you know, curriculum as well when it comes to the different things you need for musicianship. That first semester was rough. I only had two songs, but it was still rough. By the time I graduated, I was playing half of the set, and I was on guitar and bass. Everything from My Chemical Romance down to Paramore and Toto. So I had to learn very fast how to adapt as a musician. And what helped me was the new friends I was meeting. Some of them have gone on to live in Nashville, record and perform. They are preparing for master's programs. And these, I mean, these musicians I met, I mean, I will work with any of them 
they called and said, hey, I need this. I went, okay, just give me some time. I can see what I can do. If it weren't for those friends I've met, especially the advice they gave me about just relaxing and how to balance, you know, just keep my mental as intact as possible, I probably wouldn't survive in that program. I mean, at the end of the day, I can only say I achieved what I, because of the students and the professors helped too. I mean, it doesn't like having a professor sit down and start just throwing out life advice in the middle of a lecture. <laughs> that was every, that was like half of our time in the studio, just getting life advice. Those are the best professors. I always love the ones who are like, we don't need a lesson today. Let me tell you how to like do life. <laughs> oh man. I give you, I, I can do, I think I might be able to do one better. We were supposed to be working on, I think using pro tools in class one day. So instead of doing that, the professor looked at us and said, bring your guitars Thursday. We do. We walk in. He's like, all right. He pulls out a toolbox and bags. And we're like, what are we doing? He's like, you're setting up your guitars. Oh, we don't know. I'm here. <laughs> so he did a workshop on how to set up guitars in the middle of you know a lecture. We still talked about Pro Tools because he showed us how to use Pro Tools. That. But he actually coached. I mean, he would give us advice. He even water, even like coached us on a lot of the stuff we did. We struggled on something. He would show us how to achieve the tone we needed, techniques, all that stuff. Well, throwing in bits of life advice here and there as well. I mean, it, it's kind of it's kind of cool how to tie in that concept of, you know, these are friends that you didn't choose that are just friends by default or necessity or obligation, but they can actually be really good friends and, and build like super strong and tight relationships. Um, people that you might not have expected to bond with and have a really positive relationship with. Um, I think that's kind of kind of the gist of adulthood, though. It's like everything is adaptation. Everything is figuring out on the fly what to do. You know, that's kind of how it feels, at least. It does. And speaking of those friends. Those friendships, I feel like in the beginning were formed out of necessity, but maintaining them where I say some of the best times mm -hmm. for, for me at that time, we went from. Just been like, oh, hey, how are you doing? To just sitting in the studio for hours on end, listening to music and just talking about projects. Or, and I think this was 2020. I think this was spring 2021. A couple of the guys were joking with the uh, jazz ensemble director about getting a grill and cooking at the studio. Interesting. Like, you won't do it. And he, he made a passing joke about them doing it. A couple days later, they get together some money. They go to one of the sporting goods stores nearby and buy a little kettle grill. <laughs> Actually get in the studio with a bag of charcoal. <laughs> and after every rehearsal each week, we would sit outside in the parking lot and tailgate. Like we campus police show up at one point, like, what are you guys doing? We're like, cooking, you want some food? And I'm like, no, but that's <laughs> fun. Like the city police showed up, was like, what are you guys doing? We're like, do you want something like no and then we just leave <laughs> but that was one of those moments where moments like that was with those friends it was amazing because we would just sit out there in front of this tiny grill cooking whatever they bought which was either hot dogs hamburgers or the one time they were like we're gonna fancy filet mignon and just sit out there and just talk 
Mm-hmm. I mean, this would go on for, let's see, rehearsal with in um, 5.30. We would sometimes be there up to about 10 p.m. Just hanging out. But, yeah, it's those people are, they're more willing to open up, I think, because they're in the same position of vulnerability. And so whenever you are, I'm not going to say assigned friends, but essentially assigned friends like that, um, it takes a lot of the pressure off because making friends and meeting people is extremely awkward and uncomfortable. But whenever people are thrust upon you and you just have to figure it out, then you're all in the same boat and you just start working together. Um, and that's what I'm learning too, like just from just from uh, in-laws and family and, and work relationships too. It's like I, I understand now that I have the confidence to befriend someone. Whereas 10 years ago, I would have never, you know, touched it with a 10 foot pole. I would have run away. Um, now it's like, okay, if someone is put in front of me, I'll figure out a way to, you know, connect with that person and at least have a, a, a decent conversation. I'll say that's weirdly enough, that's a skill that I feel like is neglected in a lot of situations, just that ability to be able to have a conversation with anybody. I mean, yeah. Whether it be podcasting or any form of content creation, I think conversationalist is imperative to have well, an imperative skill to have in life. I mean, imagine seeing a case manager attempt to talk to somebody or anybody that has to interview or speak with people and they don't know how to have a conversation. It'd be cut and dry instead of as long as it needs to, it'll probably be five, 10 minutes and you're sitting here wondering what was that? <laughs> I'm not going to say it's not awkward. Like I've been doing this for about a month and talking to people has never been a natural gift of mine. Um, having conversations has never been a natural gift, but I find that people are more similar than you might think they are. Um, that's kind of the lesson that I'm learning as I go is that you know, people, I've talked to people with 15,000 subscribers, like gamers, hardcore content creators. I've talked to um, people with serious mental health issues. I've talked to people who are just sort of in the middle, had um, good early life, no problems, and just kind of floated through. And everybody's the same. We all have the same problems, the same anxiety, the same uh, response to things. And that's what makes it a little easier. It's a little more comfortable. But until you put yourself out there and give that a shot, you're not going to know that. And that's why people struggle so much to at least attempt to gain an understanding from other people. That's, yeah, that's, that's probably the best way to look at it. I know that's the way I, I know that is tend to look at that situation, especially with all the people I've had to interact with in the last three years alone. I mean, interacting with people who I feel are different than me, but I realize they're not, it has mm-hmm. helped because any time I do, going some of the professors I've had to deal with, the thing that has helped me the most is looking at what they, and they say imitation is the greatest form of flattery. I wasn't imitating or flatter them. I was imitating them because I'm like, I like what you do, I like your work ethic mm-hmm. or your drive. That's something that I need to know. I mean, one of the things I struggle with, which I look at, as I'm in content creation, still very small, very, very small. But one thing that helps me is just having a list of things I need to do, as well as writing out my goals. 
daily, weekly, monthly, and Twitch. It helps keep things in perspective. And I'm also keeping in mind some advice I heard recently, which is if you're doing content creation, well, this the person who said this, they do it for themselves. I would say any person who does it might want to consider doing it as well. Do it for three or five years and just take stock or inventory of what you got and how is it going and determine whether you want to keep going with it or start wrapping up. So I know some of these well-seasoned content creators, you know, the cream of the crop, the top of them, you know, the, you know, the ones at the top. I see them all shifting gears. They're not putting out the same videos they used to. They're not streaming like they used to. Instead, they're establishing businesses. They're moving more so from content creation to production, um, management, things like that. Like they're trying to help benefit the next wave of content creators. And with me, again, small content creator, but I also try to apply the knowledge I got when it comes to business to make sure that I know what I'm doing, you know, have an idea of what I'm doing and try to stay on top of things. And I'll say it's a lot. I'm not going to say it's tougher than a nine to five, but it is a lot. It's, it can be tricky just managing everything. Because one thing that concerns me, and this is no fault of my own because of my sometimes overly cautious nature, copyright. Like that's something that concerns me. I mean, I took two classes that had sections dedicated to nothing but copyright, specifically DMCA. Ever since then, if I do a live stream, I'm like, okay, royalty-free music, check. <laughs> In-game music, down to as low as possible where I can still hear it or it's heard, but it's content is transformative enough where I'm not going to get striked. Mm -hmm. Where can I upload this? YouTube, little dicey. Twitch might keep it here, but I find some way to archive this. And I'll sit there and stress myself out, overthinking. I'm like, let me just relax and just get this done. Mm -hmm. I have to take a step back and just do it. But I'm saying all that to say at some point with content creation, I, I guess I enjoy it, but I also can see myself doing a bit of management or coaching. Because if there's one thing I've had to, if there's one point I've had to push to other people who've started streaming recently, be mindful of the law. Because it's not national, it's international. DMCA applies mostly everywhere. And if you're dealing with music, you're not just dealing with DMCA, you're dealing with performing rights organizations. And they're litigious. Well, that's what it comes to music. If it's coming to like TV shows, which if I talked about it on this podcast, that'd be possibly its own episode about um, <laughs> how Twitch has various metas or just things they do that's popular. One thing that I've noticed, I don't think people do it as much as they did at the beginning of the year, but people are watching TV. They're just streaming themselves watching TV on Twitch. And we both know that can get you in some trouble with DMCA. And there was a time when people would get suspended for it. We're talking a three-day suspension because Twitch is trying not to get any fines. And, excuse me, 
everyone remembers what happened on YouTube with the apocalypse. People were afraid because they were losing ad money from ads. That's when sponsors really stepped in to save some careers. With Twitch, I fear that something similar will happen because you had people watching MasterChef on there. Mm -hmm. Someone got suspended for three days for watching Avatar The Last Airbender, one of the biggest <laughs> Twitch streamers. She was like, well, it happened. I knew better. I shouldn't have done it. And I'm like, at least she admitted she shouldn't have done it. And everybody else is just like, but the show's old. Does DMCA still matter in that case? And I'm like, yeah, it does. Like, look into the logs. <laughs> there are some there are like technicalities that can get you on at any given point. And I just wouldn't, I wouldn't tempt fate with that. So what is like said, isn't there some type of rule that's like is a, if it's a hundred years or older, it's you know, you can do what you want? Uh I try to remember it off the top of my head, but I believe it's if it was published before I went on to say 1972, it's 90 years after the copyright holder passes. Hmm. Anything after that date, it's 75, at least 75 years after the copyright holder passes. Hymns and different things like that, they're all, all considered public domain. That is free game. And that's why you have a lot of artists pushing for royalty-free music. Which, interestingly enough, a lot of royalty free music isn't bad. It gets the job done and it does sound good, which I can mm -hmm. appreciate. Yeah, I mean, as a content creator, you would know as well. But I mean, just setting up an episode of this podcast, I have to go into a library of music that's royalty free already and choose things to play uh, from that. And then I also have to limit the amount of time that it plays and it can't play longer than a certain amount of seconds can't show certain graphics on screen, even little transition effects can can catch you like on a copyright infringement. And so YouTube, Twitch, any platform, they find one tiny little thing like that. And the cool thing about YouTube, and I don't know if it's the same for Twitch, maybe you could enlighten us, but the cool thing with YouTube is YouTube will shoot you a message and be like, hey, here's the timestamp, take it out and you're good to go. Um, but, you know, it, it's certain things like that little pop noises, little sounds that will really get you in trouble. With Twitch, the handful of times I've gotten hit for copyrighted audio, which weirdly enough, it wasn't for any audio, like, you know, any music I was playing. It was for in-game audio. Hmm. The only times I've gotten hit for that, they immediately scrubbed the audio from that section. They didn't even give me a choice of it. Now, I'm saying anything hmm. was if you would have told me what it was, I would have done it myself, save you the time. But instead, I I don't even recall getting an email about it. I think I just ended up checking my analytics and saw it. I'm like, oh, that's that's great. And anytime you get a warning like that, the first time it'll make you nervous. The muted audio definitely should be taken as a warning and a moment to figure out what's passable and what's not. With Twitch, it's a little different. Going back to how some people push the envelope, I could probably pull up a stream right now. Somebody will be listening to Snoop Dogg. <laughs> through their like speakers and not think twice about it. I'm like, come on, man. I'm over here listening to royalty-free music when I stream because I'm nervous about this and trying to make sure it's appropriate for YouTube and Twitch in case if I archive my content. But it that nervousness, that precaution probably comes from the fact that 
I study business law and music commerce and music commerce. Uh, again, that's got a whole chapter dedicated to all this. That's all I could think about when I'm doing content creation. I mean, there was a period of time where content creators tried to sue each other over some over the smallest things. One of them happened to be trademarking reaction content. Hmm. That was a landmark case. It led to what's it called reaction content not being trademarked. However, it led to um that's the best way to put it. It led to uh, a new wave of content creators. Which are your react con- content creators? Some will see it as low form content, you know, low effort content. However, it still generates a lot of views. I mean, I can go on Reddit. I could probably start a stream in three hours, go on Reddit and get views, like peak views without any effort, just reacting to Reddit or Mm -hmm. Tumblr, now that it's back on the rise or any other website. But instead, given the nature of who I am, I can't do react content. I have to be actually mentally engaged in what I'm doing. So most of my content is go, you know, after I pick a game, usually something that is anxiety-inducing and stressful because of how punishing it can be, I'll play through that. So people are entertained possibly by either a me doing something successfully and showing an increase in skill, or b the frustration of me hitting a wall and not getting past it. Are you a Souls case. guy? Are you talking about yes. Dark Souls? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did play Elden Ring when it came out. I did play it on stream. That's that was stressful. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, like maybe you know, I couldn't. The reason that I can't be a React content creator is because my reactions kind of suck. I just don't react very strongly, and so it's weird when you have a person who's watching content and you're watching them watch the content. But you, I think you come to understand that you want to watch them because of their personality and the way they react. So I would suck at it because I don't have strong reactions. I would also suck at gaming because I'm not very good at video games. So I have to talk to cool people like you who are good at those things. <laughs> well, with gaming, weirdly enough, it, for me, it goes as far back as early childhood. I mean, some of my earliest memories happen to be my cousins playing Super Mario World on Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or my cousin who lived in Hawaii playing the first Sonic game on Sega Genesis. Those are my earliest memories with gaming. I'm like, okay, that's cool. I get my first console. So, place this the original PlayStation. My grandparents are like, here you go. I'm like, oh, cool. I'm like, what games did you get? And they're like, oh, they hand me the games: Spire of the Dragon <laughs> and a fishing simulator. those two games demanded perfection because Spyro's a platformer which led to habits I still have to this day when it comes to platforming like double checking and making sure I'm not about to mess up and jump in the fishing simulator that was that was a test of patience which is why (laughs) I still have an inhuman level of patience today what what are some of the um, games? So someone, I'll give you a chance at the end of the conversation to shout yourself out, so you can point people back to your uh, stream. But what are some of the games that people will see if they come over to watch you play? Well, recently, since it's October, we've shifted gears more so into you know horror. So I've been playing 
the Evil Within 2, which cool. I'm having to return to it because there's some content I missed in it. And one of the guys was just like, you need to do this. You're going to hate yourself. You're going to like, you're, you're going to enjoy it because it has a nice little ending. And I'm like, why though? Like, just beat this <laughs> game. So, because they urged me, I was like, all right, I'll do that. And as you mentioned earlier, being the Soulsborne guy, I have played Dark Souls 3, Elden Ring. And at some point, I even mentioned this recently. When I work up the nerve, I will play Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, which is supposed to be oh, the no. hardest. That, that's supposed to be the hardest game that From Software has <laughs> developed. And I am not looking forward to it. I remember hearing the guys when they played it when it first came out. They ran into the cockerels, and it was two hours of just listening to someone actually slip into insanity. I mean, the guy was like, I don't understand what's wrong with these things. I'm like, are you good? And at some point, he just regressed his childhood and started talking about how evil roosters are. Oh, so no. <laughs> we had to force him to stop playing the game because we could tell it was about to break him. So I'll play that eventually. I'll probably make that a, I'll probably make that a sub. I'll probably make that a goal. Mm. I don't want to play it without a reason. It's got to be a goal of some sort. You know, what fascinates me is, uh, and it's something that I've thought about for the future, because I'm, I'm trying to grow the podcast and get a certain number of subscribers slash listeners on audio and video, because I really like to form a community of dedicated subscribers. I don't want just bot channels that are subscribed that just never watch the content. But at some point, I'm really fascinated by Patreon. You know, a lot of people use Patreon just for like, incentives to create more content like hey i'm gonna throw a couple bonus episodes a month on patreon five dollar donation and you have access to them um i think that's really cool i think it's cool that you know youtube and twitch they they take their percentages i know twitch is having a a huge backlash right now because of ad revenue and the percentage that twitch is actually claiming from the creator um and youtube have their own problems with that too but with Patreon, like you get to earn, you know, that for that extra dedicated viewer, you get to earn money. Um, yeah. I'm curious if you have feelings or opinions about that. Well, I've actually considered the Patreon route as well, but I'm trying to move more so from, you know, or move into long form content. But I'm thinking about this in a way that, and it's weird. It was a YouTuber that said this. He sometimes streams on Twitch, but he mainly does YouTube videos. But for his alternative channels they're his streams or sections from his streams cut out and used as a youtube video and i'm sitting there thinking all right so how do i do this the next stream i have it'll be most likely me playing some indie game that's short that i can turn into a two three hour long video of me just trying to perfect what i know about you know my knowledge of the game specifically how to beat it effectively whether or not that's going to actually beat anything effectively is going to happen, that we'll see. <laughs> we'll see when the stream <laughs> happens. But. Yeah, it, what you do is is also, it it really helps you too, because not only are you doing something that's skill-based, because you're trying to improve your ability to play a video game that's already challenging. So it, you're going to draw people that want to see that because they want to see someone who's capable of beating the game. But then the other part of it is it's going to make you so angry that people are just going to laugh the entire time and, and they're going to react to your, you know, your heated, he being heated up and being angry. Uh, so it's a win-win, you know, it sounds like great content. And that's kind of what I'm learning to, 
grasp when it comes to content creation is what are those little niche things where I can pick up, you know, this, this subscriber loves podcasts, this subscriber loves this, this subscriber loves this, what can I put in that's going to keep those people around? Um, but gaming is really nice because gaming just creates those avenues for you. Yeah. Like take, for example, in the last year, I've gotten more into PC gaming and it's been the ultimate test of, for me, ultimate test of skill and my patience. You may have heard of it. Valorant. Oh boy. <laughs> hey, at least it's not a... Fortnite, right? <laughs> <laughs> someone actually tried to convince me to stream it and i was just like i'm good the only way you can make me stream it if it's a collaboration it's got to be a good one it's got to be for a cause there's got to be a reason for it <laughs> but no, with valorant if you're familiar with um what's it called counter-strike global offensive you know csgo that game is challenging Valorant is that has that same level of gunplay at times, but everybody's got superpowers, right? And I'll be sitting there like, oh, "Okay, cool. We're gonna hit the point. We're gonna deploy. We're gonna move about our business. It's gonna be great." Step on the point. Everybody's blind because somebody just threw out one of their abilities or utility or util. And then you just hear the announcer talking about how many of us are getting dropped. And I'm sitting there running away blind hearing gunfire. And I'm like, I don't even know where I'm going. <laughs> or when I finally do finish warming up, it's just me sitting there staring at the screen. And you're like, who do you think you are, Shroud? I don't even think you're close to that. And I'm like, no, I don't think I'm Shroud. He's, he's <laughs> one of the, which I will say, he's probably one of the best professional gamers in North America. I mean, Every game he plays, this guy destroys the competition. He has an affinity for that. Me, I just like perfecting my skills and at my own pace. I'm not going to sit there and with everything going on, I'm not going to be able to spend the time to do it effectively to get to that level. But I would love to do it for entertainment and content. And on top of that, if it, meet, if it leads to me meeting other like-minded individuals, cool. Because that's what's happened with me playing Valorant. I've run into other streamers who have generated some interesting content that I like to watch or have in the background. It's usually them playing something that I also play. And I just hear them screaming for a good 10 minutes because it's getting to them. But it makes good content. And when you can get two people, two or more content creators together, and they're able to bounce off of each other, the crowds that that draw, that's, I think that's more so for the performing, the performer side of me because of music. I think that's why it resonates with me. It's like, oh, cool, you're entertained. Well, how about this? Oh, that's bad. <laughs> and just play <laughs> off on the mistake and try to be entertaining about it. What are your, um, who are your favorite creators to watch? Um, It's, it's an interesting mix. There's a couple of guys on YouTube. One of them's name is Umpaville. So imagine, and the reason I like his content, he does, a lot of his content's reactionary to a degree, but it's more so like him looking at TLC's shows and talking about it, and he'll explain, oh, I do not like this at all. Like he's called them out for their shows because of how predatory in nature they can be. 
or he'll be reacting to something else. I mean, he's pulled other content creators in. He's even done videos with his grandma, like bringing her into reacting stuff. And she was like, why would you show me this? She'll play it off in a way where you can't help but laugh at her. And despite what people say about him, he just seems like a genuinely nice guy. I mean, yeah, he, I mean, this is the same guy who was sitting in his backyard. You know, essentially, it'll blow stuff up. I mean, he lives in Texas. I kind of expect that from the friends I've had in Texas. And another one, his name's Some Ordinary Gamers. He, he's essentially a commentary channel that does tech, you know, a little bit of tech advice as well, because my knowledge of Linux is extremely limited. It would have helped when I was in retail because our registers ran off of Linux. Right. But he talks a lot about Linux. He'll react to, or he'll call for attention to a specific topic. Like there's a YouTuber on the platform that is putting out dangerous or harmful content. You might see Budahar put out a 30 minute video or a video up towards to an hour talking about the person, dissecting their content, him giving his opinion, and telling you, I do not approve of this. This needs to stop. So those are two guys I watch. When it comes to Twitch, it all, depend, it all depends on the mood. But I have been trying to find smaller streamers to, you know, to give them support. I mean, mm-hmm. my issue with Twitch, YouTube has its own issues with discoverability. But Twitch, Discoverability is hard. If you are not getting viewers, you get buried rather quickly. I mean, like, say, for example, right now, there's an international invitational. I can't remember the game that's it's for, but there's a tournament going on. Now, last time I checked, I think they were pushing somewhere close to a million viewers. Wow. And I'm like, I wouldn't play that. No one's going to watch it. Because they're going <laughs> to see these pros sit here and just destroy each other. Whereas you can look through that, I mean, you can look into the, what's called the browse section and figure out, oh, this has 10 viewers. Let me try that. And it might be some indie game that no one's talked about. And that's part of my bread and butter, indie games, on top of right now it being horror. But with the indie games, I do enjoy them because those guys, they find something they like. Classic Legend of Zelda. The 2D games, and they're like, okay, cool, let's go with that vibe and let's mix it up by throwing in new mechanics to challenge the player to think outside of the box. It feels like a Zelda game, but it's not a Zelda game. Whereas I've been trying to find what's my niche, and honestly, I just feel like it's variety. Because One day I'll feel like playing, say, Valorant or Overwatch 2. The next day I'll probably move on to a game from a small French developer that's essentially a fantasy life simulator that punishes you for the smallest of mistakes. I mean, get a coal, and next thing you know, you're waking up in the end because you've passed out walking back to town. Just punishing things like that. And that's also what people seem to come to my channel for. Just watching me play something that's going to be punishing and trying to find a way to circumvent the frustration that is yeah i (laughs) i've learned and this is something that i've learned in just the first month of trying to manage the podcast but the youtube algorithm is extremely unforgiving and there are a couple of things that will kill your channel extremely fast so the first thing Mm -hmm. is 
engagement matters way more than almost anything else. Like it doesn't matter if it's a dislike, it doesn't matter if it's a hate comment, as long as they're liking and commenting, then they're going to push your content. Um, retention matters a lot. You know, if they, if they watch hundred percent of it versus they watch 20%. And then the one thing that I don't fully grasp is that if you upload anything at all, that's not in your lane, they're going to kill your channel. So it's like if I upload 15 podcast episodes and shorts related to podcasting, but then I go upload one like guitar cover, that's going to bury you extremely fast because the YouTube algorithm wants you to stay in your niche and in your lane. So the thing that's appealing about Twitch is like, hey, I'm a variety gamer. I can play any game I want. And if people enjoy my personality, people come to the stream, Twitch is going to keep pushing my content out which sounds kind of like what you're playing with right now is just figuring out what your lane and your niche might be. That's also where t oh, for me, TikTok comes into play as well, because I do have some clips over there from games I've played offline. I mean, I'll say my most successful clip, it's not a million views, but still for me and for it to grow as fast as it did in a short amount of time, I was like, oh, this is great. And I'm a no name. Like this, this feels good. I should definitely keep this up. I, if I remember correctly, the clip was just essentially a what not to do in Valorant. It's the last round. I'm like, win or lose, this match is over. I don't care anymore. We turn the <laughs> corner. Like we, like the whole team turns the corner and chaos erupts. And I upload that TikTok. I go to bed. Wake up next morning. I have comment. I have a couple comments, and I'm sitting there talking to people in the comments. And they're laughing at the fact that I'm saying, like, yes, I hope this TikTok will be used as an example <laughs> of what you do not do playing this game because I don't claim to be good. I just get, I honestly feel like sometimes I just get really lucky. I mean, there have been times when I've played that game and I feel the pressure from one person on the enemy team. And I'm like, this guy is using an alternative account and he's mad at someone. So he's taking it out on us. This is therapy for him. It's not, there, <laughs> which is going to lead to me needing therapy. But I do, you know, and that's, that's a bit of advice that a lot of larger streamers have talked about. In fact, there's one that comes to mind. I found her through TikTok, weirdly enough. That's her whole bread and butter. That's, all she does, giving advice. She streams on Twitch, she's giving advice, and she's showing you exactly what she does. She has, I want to say, like documents you can download for free through Ko-Fi as well for like who are sponsors you need to look into, how to go about sponsorships and things like that. Just coaching on what you need to know as a content creator. I'm sitting here like, why aren't more people doing this? Yeah. Whereas, nin whereas Ninja, you probably saw it. He put out a uh, masterclass. You sign up for it, you pay $200 a year for Ninja to teach you how to be a streamer on Twitch. I'm like, some of this advice doesn't apply to the small guys. Yeah. What about the growth? What about getting to that point? Like, you've skipped all the groundwork to get, you know, getting to that point. I'm not going to give him a hard time. I mean, he worked to get to where he's at, and he's coasting pretty nice especially after you know mixer had to pay him out given the platform collapsing but i do enjoy seeing you know 
smaller content creators have some success is what I'm going to get at about this and finding people who give helpful advice for a smaller content creator, which I've tried to do that as well. I've actually gotten Discord calls where I'm sitting there looking through clips to try to find for TikToks. And they're like, hey, can you help me with this? And I'm like, sure. Um, share your screen. I'll coach you through it. Let's hope I remember. Because <laughs> for me, it's all presets at this point. Yeah. No, I, I whenever I started creating or conceptualizing a podcast, I told my wife, I was like, the one goal that I have, the only goal that I have, nothing to do with monetization, nothing to do with being a creator, making a living, just to have a positive impact on one person. That's it. That was the goal. That's all I wanted to do. One person watch an episode and take something out of it. Um, and I think there's something that's kind of ingrained in us. Like we want to help other people in some way. And that's it. It's coming through. Like you're saying, I wish that somebody had a step-by-step -step guide for small people, small creators, you know, that would really tell you how to play with the algorithm, how to get your videos pushed out, how to get your stream in front of different people. Um, and I've seen some of that. Some of the some of the channels that I follow, you know, the creators that they will provide resources and say, here's how we did it, here's what we did, you know, good luck kind of thing. But there's no super comprehensive step-by-step -step guide. I mean, there's the YouTube Academy or whatever it is where you could watch those videos, but um, it's hard to teach people how to essentially get lucky, right? Because, yeah. you know, there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. And there have been creators who've been working 15, 20 years before they started popping off. But, you know, you require some luck. That's kind of the whole thing is like, in order to get a video into YouTube suggested content, it requires luck. You know, it's, and there's a lot of things you could do to manipulate the algorithm. I'm sure Mr. Beast and PewDiePie could tell you a lot about that stuff. But, you know, in order to get to that place where you're starting to play with the algorithm, you first have to build a community and build a following. And I don't see very many help documents on that part. Um, I'm trying to remember her name. I think it's Caliente, spelled with a K. She's a... Uh... She's the person who I've seen really getting into explaining what it takes to try to, you know, start getting that early growth. She did one TikTok talking about it and she said, here's what you're going to do. It's going to be a lot of work, but it pays off. I'm like, okay, hit me. After every stream, just go ahead and start making clips. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. Because for me, a stream could be anywhere from an hour and a half for an actual stream, hour and a half to... I think my longest one was eight hours. And by the end of it, you know, signed off and everything. I got up, wandered in the kitchen, found the strongest coffee that well, coffee, strongest tea that we had, made a couple cups, sat down, and I was like, I should probably make these clips, but I should go to bed. Finish <laughs> these cups of coffee, finish these cups of tea, and go to bed. Because <laughs> for me, it was like eleven p.m. and I started around three that day. It was luckily it was a Saturday. Yeah. I had nothing to do, but still eight hours. And I've seen some of the biggest streamers go for 15, almost 20 hours just for a normal stream. And you have people who do subathons, mm -hmm. which the appeal of a subathon is more so getting in there and keeping the energy going so that person continues to stream. Like you have some people who might do it for 72 hours. You have some people who do it like cap. The next thing you know, they've been live for a month. Oh no. Yeah. Um, Ludwig, he's over on YouTube now, but 
that's what lot. I mean, that's what everybody knows him for on Twitch. A guy who streamed for a month straight, and since then, other people have done that. There was a smaller streamer who apparently was live for, I want to say, close to a year. Wow. I didn't. I can't remember the name, but when it finally came to an end, they were so thankful. And I'm like, I would be too. I don't think I could <laughs> be on camera that long. It's hard enough trying to do it for four hours, especially yeah. if you're small and you don't have anybody there. Luckily, depending on what you're doing, someone to trickle in, start a conversation. And next thing you know, it's been five hours. And you're like, oh, I also haven't made progress in this game. We've just been sitting here talking in this one cutscene. The the one thing that I notice sometimes when I go over to streams, which kind of stops me a little bit, you know, sometimes people will have these unrealistic um, donation trains or subscriber trains. And so I'm, I'm here to watch you like speed run this game or I'm here to watch you like do some collabing on like a FPS or something. But there's 30 minutes of people donating and you're just reacting because it's it's impactful. Like that's a huge deal when people are showing that kind of support. It really throws me off because I'm like, I just came for the game. <laughs> you know, I did come yeah. for the the uh, the support, which I wish that I was receiving. <laughs> see, I see that too with uh, streaming. And the thing that really, really wigs me out, it's hilarious to no end. I have to find the clip. But there was, um, and you've probably heard the word thrown around on YouTube. Because it's not a secret. They're not anything new. VTubers. They have launched into like the forefront of everybody's mind to face in the last few years alone. The lockdown really helped because people were stuck indoors. They're exploring content more often. So they're going to see more of these little animated you know, 2D figures. So it's almost 3D. Either playing a video game or something cute. Just saying something so out of pocket you can't believe those words came out of that cute face and there's a vtuber who did a month-long subathon and if i remember correctly her friend who happens to be a welsh youtuber named sea dog va dropped in her chat just checking on her and the clip he's telling her chat increase the time like she was about to run out i think she was at like I think three hours at the time and he just kept screaming run the clock it went from three hours to about 12. Wow. Like he just kept hyping them up. Every so often, people would just drop in and hype, the, like, hype up her audience to increase the clock. And she spent a month on stream. That's that's part of the appeal of subathons. Just seeing <laughs> how long you can keep somebody on stream if it's uncapped. Yeah, no, no subathon for me. So anybody who's watching or listening, I'm not going to be in front of you for more than a couple hours. I promise you're not going to hear my voice for eight, 12, three days. Like none of that's going to happen. Um, just talking to people and having deep conversations for a couple hours is more than enough. I might do it if it's for charity. That's okay. Only yeah. I'm going to do it. I'll do it for charity. Like, mm -hmm. Which there's a couple I would, there's a couple I wanted to contact recently just to see, hey, do you want any other content creators involved with raising you guys some money? I have free days coming up and I have nothing better to do. And hmm. I would definitely love to give back. So I think what what, what the plan's got to be then is you and I are starting a, po a new podcast, but as VTubers. <laughs> so we start a podcast as little animated creatures 
and use voice changers. And then we just talk whatever we want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> if I did that, I if I did that's the weird thing about the VTuber uh, the VTubing scene. Like I've heard of content creators who had a career on YouTube and they didn't get any traction. Still using their actual voice, they start using a VTuber avatar. Next thing you know, they got a million subscribers. And I'm like, how? How? And I'm like, oh, wait. Let's check some of these clips out. Oh. <laughs> now I see why. It's what you yeah, say and what your VTuber looks like. Yeah, it's it's more about the look, I think. Because you got some people who are into some very interesting things. <laughs> yeah. That's... which. You saying that made me think about depending on who is in chat when I'm streaming, the conversation will probably just be us talking about video games and movies, or it can go into talking about you know different things in media, like how certain you know forms of media will push the envelope with the story they tell, and you're just sitting there like, oh my god, that was terrible. Why did I read that? <laughs> like I had that conversation recently with a viewer. That conversation lasted two hours i'm sitting there playing a jrpg and i'm like wow these enemies are kind of tough look over and i'm like i think i know what you're talking about but continue i read the next <laughs> message i'm like yeah i know exactly what you're talking about never read it but i've heard about it and it's one of those things that people kind of like talk about you know quickly in the corner they don't want to admit that they've heard about it or they know and i'm sitting here like wait i just recorded that i know about this oh well anyways and move on <laughs> and that conversation, just to give you an idea of how out of control like that piece of medium is, in that conversation with that viewer, I actually turned like to my monitor, look, then look back at the camera and said, This is a content warning. This is a disclaimer. Do not go clicking around on the internet. It will scar you. And then that viewer chimed in in chat and said, Please listen to him. And if you don't, you're welcome for the uh, mental scarring. <laughs> like they were sitting there cracking jokes. And I'm sitting here like, we're like, it was really far seeing me and this viewer piggyback off each other with the situation. Because what they were talking about, if you were to like dive into it, just surface level. It it's jarring. Well, that's slightly. It's it can be absolutely scarring for some people. And we were just sitting here having a whole co coded conversation about it like it was nothing. Granted, like most people in our generation, I've been on the internet for 20 years. I have... I've seen some things, man. <laughs> like, I say that like a Vietnam veteran, all joke. But no, like, you've been on the internet as long as some of us have been. You get to a level of desensitization where nothing really... Charge you anymore, and then there's the Twitter associated with the fact that I stream. It's one of the scariest places to be on the internet without going somewhere like 4chan. Yeah, I sometimes I think. Go ahead, go ahead. I was about to say, like, sometimes I'm like, is 4chan really that bad? Because like Twitter actually has me concerned. It can be so bad. Yeah, I, my greatest fear of success is having an out-of-context Twitter that I'm not managing. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Man, I, I may have shot myself in the foot because I did say in a recent stream 
this being a viewer we're talking about one of the things i i try to keep the topics open for whatever you want to do, as long talk about as long as you don't got a trauma dump i actually probably need to add that to my rules i have studied psychology however i am not equipped or qualified to talk about trauma on stream i will most likely give you assets that you need to make a call so you get the help that you need but we started talking about tribalism and fan bases it's a very interesting topic when you look at the anime community because they're ravenous and since chainsaw man anime just dropped you know based off of the manga that's exactly what we see and we got into a full-blown conversation about how people actually were threatening a content creator i believe it was a content creator about their opinion on a couple of the characters in chainsaw man and i I usually don't make strong statements on stream. I'm usually, and this is probably a bad comparison, but I sometimes take the out, which is almost like I'm being way too politically correct. That's more so for to avoid being taken out of context or being canceled. But I'm gonna go ahead and say it. If you're sitting here saying threats to somebody about an opinion, shame on you. They yeah. don't deserve that. It's an opinion. This is the internet. This is. This was supposed to be a tool used for discussion, discourse. And instead, it's rife with tribalism. I was defending the person on stream. And I was like, wow, I'm being about this. I'd never do this. And the rest of the stream just had that vibe. Anytime something came, emotional response out of me, I would just strongly. I did rein it in for one thing, but it's more so to avoid a certain fan base attacking me. Because <laughs> I was about to make a whole side of Twitter angry with one comment. <laughs> Knew somebody was going to watch that, hear that, and be like, let's post this everywhere. And then I got people <laughs> hate, hey, views, but also, oh God, I don't want those views. <laughs> yeah, no, I think one of my big. Uh, one of my big weaknesses from a career perspective and from a content perspective is my transparency. I don't really think too much about what I say. I just kind of say what I'm thinking. And that's probably bad generally from a professional perspective as well as a content perspective, or maybe it's good. I guess we'll find out later. Um, but like, I, I just, I'm extremely honest and straightforward and direct about things. So if someone asks me a question about something sensitive, I answer it, which not the best all the time. <laughs> and my wife is a lot better. She's a lot more um, sensitive and considerate about her thoughts and, you know, at least giving everybody an equal platform to feel the way they feel. But I'm just not built that way. And so I, I know at some point there's going to be some kind of trending clip somewhere that someone's going to be really upset about and I'm going to be like, all right, this is the internet. I paid. This is what you get when you get on the internet. <laughs> See, early on, I was about that. And at some point, I guess you can say the more recent streams I've had where that's just been a thing where I'm at one or two viewers for a good two hours, just holding an actual conversation. Like, I just went to, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to flow organically. If something gets taken out of context, I'll address it because I've seen or just content creators in general address that type of situation as masterfully as possible. And then I've seen where people do like the stereotypical bad apology video where they have like a prop or a dog or something like that in the background. They're like, I'm sorry, I had a gross lapse in judgment. And it's like, really? That's all you have to say? You're not acknowledging it? Or that 
can't remember the girl's name. She was famous on TikTok. Her apology. I wouldn't react to it on stream, but it's that it's been reacted to by so many people. There is no point. She got called out because what she did was criminal. But instead of like apologizing, she made like a brief statement about her life and then turned and danced for the rest of the video. <laughs> and I was just like, okay. That that's a thing that you did. You danced <laughs> on like congratulations. I'm now confused as to what you So just to, to kind of transition into um, the end here, I, I do want to ask you a little bit about um, purpose and calling, something that I normally talk about with guests toward the end of the episodes. Um, so I guess the first question, the most obvious question is, what do you understand your purpose to be? Do you do you understand that you have one? And if so, where does it come from? Well, I feel like purpose for me, I think it just comes out of the way I've lived my life and what I seem to have an affinity for. One of the things I think it would be for me is helping people. I mean, I'm not the hundred percent self-sacrificing. I will suffer. So you may be taken care of, but I will. There have been times when I have gone out of my way to help somebody. And normally in situations like that, it's just like, Oh, think nothing of it. I move on. They want to, make a big deal out of it. I'm like, please don't make a big deal out of it. Just, just go about business. Like it was, you know, as usual, it's not a big, you know, hubbub about it. I'm like, but I'm like, no, stop. <laughs> and the other thing, I guess it comes out of my time in college as a musician. I really found that I have an affinity and enjoyment for entertainment. I mean, just, a bit of background for the ensemble I played for. We did play in a wine bar in town as well as a local brewery. Those are some fun shows. Just have a bunch of people sitting around with ciders and ales as well as beer sitting there, you know, belting out the lyrics to Ain't It Fun by Paramore or you have a <laughs> bunch of people sitting there swaying while like singing Rosanna. Like those were fun moments for me. And I think that's part of like why I jumped into content creation like I did which really the start of it was someone just being, hey, let's stream this game. And I'm like, okay, cool. I have nothing to do. And it led to me wanting to entertain people. But I also, going back into helping people, I try to keep my space as a uh, streamer or with anything I do with content creation, a safe, free space for people to engage in conversation, whether it be about media or philosophy, the conversations can go just about however they want. Just keep them civil. Don't come in with you know hatred. And also, if somebody's struggling, don't give them a hard time. Let's try to let's address it in a professional way. And if it comes down to it, let's guide them into getting the help they need. I mean, a lot of people say as content creators don't have a responsibility to people part of me begs to differ on that because you've probably seen it with both pewdiepie mr b's and actually any content creator that big people constantly say you made my bad days great with your content 
my concern and the thing I try to keep an eye out for is when somebody comes in and they're having a bad day, I want to address it in a way that's not going to be super obvious, but not, you know, not bring a lot of attention to them. Because you never know what's going on on the other side of the screen for someone. So I feel like my purpose would be, my purpose is twofold. It would be entertaining people as well as helping them. So hopefully more, more will come out of it, whether it be case management, performing as a musician or content creation. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think it all kind of comes from the same place. And I, it does help, I think, that we have very similar um, grounding and, and environment in early life and kind of come through similar programs and schools and, and belief systems. But at the end of the day, what I'm learning is that regardless of what people believe, what people like, what people are into, you know, just extending a, an olive branch, trying to help people trying to support them in whatever way you can, especially now as a result of COVID and the world sort of tanking all of a sudden for everybody, people are really starting to figure out that being helpful and being caring and concerning is way more effective than trying to argue for a cause or trying to start some type of, you know, incite some type of violence. Um, and hopefully that direction will continue. Hopefully the Gen Zers will save us all. Um, can't say that I have extreme faith in them, but you never know. <laughs> I am hoping that they surprise us. I truly do. Like I see a lot of potential in the generation and I hope they surprise us all. <laughs> what I see today, boy, does it scare me. <laughs> <laughs> what is your, um, this is totally unrelated to purpose and all that good stuff. What is your uh, guitar of choice? Well, if I had to be honest, for now, it's the, uh, I would say the one I'm currently using, which is a Stratocaster, oh, Fender Stratocaster, or excuse me, Fender Player Stratocaster, similar to the Highway 1 setup with the two single coil pickups and a uh, humbucker. I actually, I, also, I feel like, I feel like I had that guitar for a while. I, mean, I don't have it anymore, but I definitely had that guitar. That's a really good setup. Would you have the humbucker? I, I enjoy it. It got me through so many shows playing. It got me through a lot of things because really enough, at some point I had to play jazz and I think that humbucker did it for me. Yeah. I'll also say I enjoy. Now this one was a labor of love and more money spent on it than I care to admit, but it's a Squire classic vibe Telecaster, but I modified it. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> there's not a lot of money in a Squire Telecaster. So it sounds like you might've done something to it. Oh man. So much. <laughs> I think about 300 and die $300 of parts for mods, about 110 for labor. So I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have them buy the parts. I bought them, showed up at the shop and said, here you go. Call me when it's done. Yeah, exactly. But that guitar is perfect for, uh, I would say pop punk and some of the harder stuff. Cause I have a four way selector switch in it that allows the pickups to run. I think it's parallel. So it's not like a humbucker. So that got me through a lot of shows as well in school. Awesome. So um, I just want to summarize kind of the conversation very briefly. And then there's one more activity we'll do. Um, but 
you know, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your your story and, and your time and having the conversation. I mean, you've been going for a while, so I know I must have inserted so much information in your brain by this point, <laughs> um, which is cool. Like, it's good to catch up. It's good to to kind of come back, swing back around and reconnect with people from the past and just see how far we've come, you know, in 10 years and how much we've changed as much as we've stayed the same. Um, we, we're not passionate about the same things anymore, but uh, hopefully we're growing in similar similar ways and, and becoming better people as we go. Um, so what I like to do, I have a little game that I like to do with each guest at the end. This is inspired for those watching and listening by James Lipton, who had a show in the 90s called Inside the Actor Studio. And at the end of each interview, he would ask 10 questions. These are going to be off the top of the head answers, so don't think too hard about them. Uh, you can do one word, one sentence, one phrase, whatever you like, and we'll see where we get just to learn a little bit more about you before we conclude. Um, so are you ready? Yep. All right. Let's see what we can come up with. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite word? Favorite word? Water, weirdly enough. That is extremely weird, but I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is your, what is your least favorite word? Okay moist which is also weird because <laughs> water is just that <laughs> yeah you're just describing your favorite word <laughs> yeah what excites you what excites me uh performing music what what upsets you <sighs> okay i shut down there. <laughs> what upsets me i guess you say when i force myself on that pursuit for perfection and I don't get that. I take a step away and not get in my head about it. So standing on my own way, essentially. What sound or noise do you love? The sound I love. Okay, this is going to be a weird one. 60 cycle hum from a guitar amp. <laughs> Just so I know that it's working. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? Um. Okay. The ring from tinnitus. That's a bit of a personal one, but yeah, the ring from tinnitus. I mean, you're 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 right up the lane of uh, who is it? Um, Ryan Adams. He's the one mm -hmm. who, like, recently had the trouble with tinnitus. Um, what motivates you to act every day when you wake up? Uh, accomplishing goals and seeing who I can reach. Awesome. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Hmm. I would say producer. I enjoy studio time. So being behind a control console and guiding an artist or a group of artists on a project, I think, that, I think I'll enjoy that again. Um, what profession would you not like to do? I've already done it, but it's retail. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not touching that one either. You'll never see me selling anything. <laughs> no. And then lastly, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Hmm. So tell me, what were you thinking for all the things that you did and it somehow worked out? <laughs> or you somehow didn't get hurt? I want to hear your thoughts. <laughs> so you want God to ask you a question? Yeah, I, I mean he's gonna, I mean he's already gonna have the answer, but I want to. Right. I would like to see the reaction of like me saying it. <laughs> Fair enough. 
So that's the end of the show. Um, I'm going to let you have the final word. So uh, again, thank you for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Definitely have to do a part two at some point because there are a lot of points that we ha- we didn't get to. That'll be really cool to to do at some point. Um, thank you for your time. This is a time for you to shout yourself out, say whatever you'd like to say. And then once you get done, I will hit our outro music and we're all good. All right. For the viewers on YouTube, as well as the listeners, the audio format, you can find me on Twitch at Reggae Toxic. That is Reggae spelled R-E-G-G-A-E underscore Toxic, T-O-X-I-C, as well as TikTok by the same name. You'll know you, you'll know when you see the icon when it's you know, Rasta colored. I will make sure that your host have the links with the, you know, before the weekend's over with, I got to get everything together. And hopefully you'll see me on YouTube soon as well as I get everything I need to start archiving. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you again. And uh, we're all, we're all set. Thank you for having me.